Remember the good old 1980s When things were so uncomplicated I wish I could go back there again And everything could be the same Simply the best Welcome to 80s Orgraphy. Uh, I've been thinking of doing this for a while. I normally think about doing this in about March time, but which time is too late. But I've, I've been meaning to do like a, an annual kind of best of the year. And these dictate the episode I'm currently working on is, is, is a bugger to edit, and I knew I wasn't going to get it done this month, so I thought I'd do this instead. Consider it a, a sampler, a taster for any episode you've not listened to. They're all good interviews, so why wouldn't you? Apologies and thanks if you've listened to every episode already. Hopefully you'll get something out of hearing these bits again. Anyway, so let's get started in chronological order. Trevor Horn. So Trevor, what a great way to start the year. Um, I've been after Trevor for months when I found out his autobiography, Adventures in Modern Recording, was coming out. I pestered Nikki at the publishers for ages. She was really great. She really came through for me. Some guests, you never feel that they've truly warmed to you during the interview. But then somebody said they'd not heard him laugh so much in an interview before. And the fact it was 60 minutes, not the 30 minutes I thought it was going to be, hence it being a, a random questions episode. Um, I must count for something. But it was great. He's great. It's Trevor Horn. Uh, this this little segment, uh, the Gary mentions is Gary Langan, his engineer, who I've also interviewed in the past. I asked him who the biggest diva was he'd worked with, and he said John Anderson of Yes. So this references that at the beginning and then talks about the Yes song, Leave It. So when you've got a situation like with Gary and John Anderson where two people, it's often in bands who get two members of the band that hate each other. How do you as a producer, you're like the dad with two kids, how do you negotiate that? What is your technique for getting... My technique for negotiating that? So Gary, you better fucking watch it, man. Otherwise there'll be trouble because you can't keep doing that. It frightens me when you do that. Gary and I had to just keep going with John. There was no other way. And that was Gary's frustration. You see, the problem was that John, John, God bless him, for whatever reason, and he had his reasons, didn't uh, didn't want us comping his vocal. And so it being the days of analog, we had to keep dropping in on the same track. Mm-hmm. And that was heartbreaking sometimes because you'd have two really good lines and then, you know, the, the tape opera would catch one of the lines, you know, and the drop in. So we'd have to redo that line as well. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. this is analog tape, yeah. right? Not fucking computers and all the modern fantastico stuff. And so it could be literally heartbreaking. 
and you have to keep going forward. And Gary was just voicing the frustration. John could be a, John could be a bit sharp. What was what was his attitude to John Anderson's attitude, attitude towards you? Because obviously for the drama album, you, you basically effectively replaced him. You were the singer, right? Yeah. So was there any kind of resentment from him to you? Oh, yeah. Of course, there was. of course there was. Yeah. I mean, some of it wasn't too bad, you know. It wasn't like every minute of every session was a total pain in the neck with him. It was a difficult... John came in at the end, you see. We'd, we'd almost finished the album. It was me that wanted to bring him back initially because I wanted it to be back being yes because I thought it would do better and have more longevity if it was yes. And it sounded like yes anyway. And it still felt like it, need the ma- need, it needed the main character. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We had some brilliant stuff. I mean, we had Leave It. We just put John on, leave it. You know what I mean? Trevor Raven and me sung that whole thing. Chris sung that whole thing. My bits got wiped off. John replaced <laughs> all my bits. Goodbye, 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 bad. Was it originally all me? All uh, right, okay. Yeah, but John replaced me. God bless him. Uh, so uh, John made a huge difference when he came back. However prickly he may have been, he was a really good leading man. I was going to ask about Leave It because I think it's a brilliant track. It sounds quite complicated. Again, it's one, it's one of the ones that Julian Mendelssohn said that took fucking ages to make that. It was a nightmare. It was, yeah. We worked on that one up in Wilsdon and it started um, because I've, I've got a writing credit on that because I wrote all the lyrics apart from Leave It. They had Leave It. Down, bam, buddle, down, bam. And they had it with a drum machine as well. So they, it was like they were prepared to do it with a drum machine. Do you know, I can't remember... If I came up with, I can see no sense of measure, no illusion as we take refuge in young man's pleasure, breaking down the dreams we make real. I've got a feeling I came up with that because I thought the song was about being unfaithful on the road. And so I wrote all the lyrics about that. One down, one to go to the town, one more show. Uptown, you're giving away what you never get back. No phone can take your place, do you know what I mean? We have more intrigue than a court of kings. Ah, uh, leave it, you know? So I I think there was a bit of... They weren't very... Initially, people weren't sure about MacArthur Park and the driving style, but it sounded so well, so it stayed in. One down, one to go To another town, one more show Downtown, give it away But you never came back Take your place, you know what I mean We have the same intrigue But I remember making that track as being one of the most fun parts of making that record. When Chris and Trevor went out and sang that intro, they just sang it a cappella, you know what I mean, and then tracked themselves. It was like, fuck me, that's good, you know. I can feel no sense of measure And then the doom do 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 that. I, I can't remember how we started that, and suddenly that just took off. And I thought that was great too, you know. Like, uh, so it was a it was a real fun time, and the violin player coming in and playing that funny violin, and Alan White stuff. You know, Alan White was like uh, didn't play drums on it, you know, but he played all the drums pretty much 
that are on all those drum fields, that's all of him mm. on a keyboard. I mean, I thought they were amazing when he first played that, like the one that comes in the least, you know, you don't expect it. And and, and I made sure the dakong, dakong things were huge. I had all these samples, you know. Alan took to the samples like Dr. Water. So that's a that was a fun track. I really enjoyed that. Cox. Peter, some interviews are a real surprise and a revelation. Um, I was really excited about speaking to Peter, actually, but he was very engaging and honest about his insecurities, which which were a surprise to me. Um, he's one of those pop stars that seemingly had it all in the 80s. The, the first Go West LP is massively underrated to me. It's one of those albums that fly by whenever you hear it. I only wish I'd asked in the question that I asked Thomas Dolby just in his bit later on. But anyway, here's Peter talking about his great, well, great to us, voice. I've got to talk about your voice because you have, you still have an amazing voice. I think it's one of the most underrated British voices of all time. And and, and going through that YouTube comments for the, the songs and that, number of times people can't comment on your voice and how amazing it is. I, I read some of that. Um, Peter Cox's voice should be on display in the museum. One of the most powerhouse voices <laughs> of all time. Peter is, in my opinion, one of the top five pop singers ever. Peter Cox, the best white soul singer, followed by Paul Young. I know you're friends with Paul, so that's good, isn't it? You got ahead of Paul. So at what point did you realise, not just that you could sing, like you had perfect pitch in that, but you had a, a great sounding voice? Well, uh, first of all, all those comments are very kind, um, and I do appreciate that positivity, but I don't have that sense of my voice myself. It's a... It's an unpredictable thing, which uh, which causes me <laughs> much emotional pain. I sang in the choir at school, my school Hampton Grammar at the time. I think it's a private school now. My parents could never have afforded to send me to private school. But Hampton had a connection to the Chapel Royal at Hampton Court Palace. So uh, as a schoolboy, I duly went along and auditioned and got into the Chapel Royal at Hampton Court Palace. Um, and sang in the choir there for a year until my soprano voice broke. So I mention all that because, you know, I guess I had an ear for music, even if I would rather have been playing football yeah. uh, at, at 12 years old. But that was the beginning, I guess, of singing. It's, it's, if it's not too inappropriate to say, it's the, it's the white version of a, of a soul singer's church experience when they were younger. I was developing my pitch because I was always very anxious, being an anxious type of person that um, I wouldn't be the chorister who was holding up the choir rehearsal. So I, and I couldn't, couldn't read music, even though the music sheets were handed out to the choristers every week. So I would learn by ear as fast as I could in the hope that no one was looking at me going, oh, he's holding everything up. So that was good ear training in a way. Uh, and yeah. it stood me in good stead. And then when I got older and my voice broke, I carried on singing in the choir at school and started to develop an interest in music, primarily the reggae coming out of Jamaica in the late 60s, I suppose. And that led to Motown, uh, obviously, and all those incredible singers of that era. And then the first rock, and I mention rock because 
the first band, in inverted commas, that I was in was arguably a rock band. My rock influence was Paul Rogers in the band Free and later Bad Company. Paul Rogers is, in my opinion, the best white singer this country has produced uh, and still sounds awesome today and that was my first influence and the band that I was in named themselves after a free song and before we wrote any original material in the days when I wouldn't have known what a tribute band was I guess you could have argued that we were a free tribute band because that's all we played <laughs> songs by free <laughs> and I tried my best to sound as much like Rogers as I possibly could so uh, in terms of when I, when did I have any sense that I had a decent sounding voice. I suppose um, when uh, when we started to get final interest from publishers and then recording companies, because clearly if they didn't see any potential in me as a singer, um, we would have had no interest. So I guess that was it. But I'm not, as you probably are gathering, I'm not, I don't have that kind of ego where I I think, you know, hey, I, I'm I'm a great singer. All you can really do is show up and do the very best you can at every opportunity. And I think that's that sounds sensible to me. That's what I try to do even now, as frustrating as my voice can sometimes be from my point of view. How's that? That's a good answer. Okay, I'm going to go back on a couple of things based on what <laughs> it's, okay. it's a long answer. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's a great answer because it's, 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 it's going to lead to a couple more questions. So when you say the first time you had an idea or an inkling that your voice was, was good was from the record company, but you could put that down to the songs as well, couldn't you? Was there not a time before that, like when you sang socially or with friends where they were like, oh my God, your voice is amazing? Peter, like, have you thought of like doing this profession? There's no earlier time, like in your late teens, early twenties, where that was like people were pointing out to you how great your voice was. No, not really. As I say, I'm, I'm even now. People ask, you know, do you sing at home? And actually, no, I don't really. Having had uh, the common experience of losing my voice while on tour, uh, up until that point, I'd always taken my voice uh, and whatever I could do somewhat for granted. I'd never done any work on vocal exercise sizes or training my voice or, or looking after it particularly because I like a glass of wine and, and that's not good for your voice and so on and so on and so on. So these days I do try to do um, half an hour of vocal exercises every day because it's a muscle. Your vocal cords are, are muscles like any other and you need to keep them working. But uh, I say all that because I would never be singing in a social uh, occasion. More recently, when we've done promotion in Japan, in Japan, the karaoke thing is, is a really big deal. And on a couple of occasions, I've been out to dinner with the Japanese distributor, our record label in Japan, and they'll take you to dinner. And after dinner, the next thing that happens is karaoke. <laughs> and right. uh, in, in that environment where you are the supposed professional, when the mic gets handed to, do, to you, I, I personally feel a terrible pressure revealing how uptight I am, I suppose. But I can't think of anything I would less want to do than karaoke. It never would have occurred to me that your voice would be something that would be of of concern like that and and worry. I think I think it would be more accurate and more concise to say it doesn't always do what I want it to do, and I wish it would. And I also would love it if I didn't have so much angst about it.
Two of my absolute favouritest episodes I've done are the two Tears of Fears commentaries with Dave Bascom. One of them with Ian Stanley as well. Uh, absolute joy to do. So inevitable, I would do the career chat with Dave. It's just a matter of when. Uh, he's, he's so easy to talk to and has had a great career. And I felt I had to include the, the Tears of Fears segment of his myotography, including me repeating Kurt's theory on how Seeds of Love is more similar to songs from the big chair than people think. I don't think I work with any band that's three egos as much as the police. I mean, it appears to be disagreements disagreement at the mixing stage, but it was it was, it was civilized. You know, it was, that's the point. It was we never kind of have any rows, or well, you never rows, but no one's going to beat each other up. You know, it was, it was yeah. just you'd sit and have a half an hour discussion about something, and eventually I'd get so bored I just press play and do what I thought we should do. And quite often it would go, oh, yeah, that's all right. Uh, right. <laughs> so, you know, I get. It was boring in that sense, but it wasn't. Um, it was. It wasn't stressful. They weren't. They weren't fighting. I think later on with Seeds with the Seed to Love album, if Kurt had been around more, there probably would have been that sort of stuff going on because they really weren't seeing very eye to eye. But as you know, Kurt was in New York doing other stuff, so yeah, so that didn't really arise either. So no, I don't really think I've had a, a situation like that with those kind of egos. Okay, cool. Talking about Seeds of Love, um, I read somewhere that Peter Gabriel, because you were working in Bath at a certain point, Peter Gabriel popped in and said he liked Women in Chains. Do you remember that? I don't remember that, no. Yeah, at all, okay. i got a quote here from Rolling Stone and a Rolling Stone interview with Kurt. I thought it was quite interesting, making a comparison between the track listing of Seeds of Love with Songs from the Big Chair. So I'll read this out, you see what you think about this, okay? Bearing a mouse with an American uh, magazine for an American audience. Yeah. So from Kurt, okay? And the reason we were happy with this order is because it's similar to the last album. The first song is the second single, which is Shout and Women in Chains. Yeah. The second song is the album track, Working Out, Bad Man Song. The third song is the first single, so Rule the World was the first single in America, yeah. and So in the Seeds of Love. The fourth song is another single, <coughs> and it's broken advice to the song with the younger heart. Stay, stick with me with this. Turn over the other side, and the first song is a bit more ethereal, kind of loose, I believe is standing on the corner of the third world. Going into weirdness, which is broken, which I can compare to the instrumental middle section of Swords and Knives. Yeah. We have the applause on the third track, yeah. which is <laughs> broken. Yeah, the knife going to another third <laughs> track, famous last words, and listen. So I think that's probably why it was comfortable. Yeah. Now, was that a conscious thing, do you think, or was it something that I, just. I think, but as I've said before, I think Sony Seeds are uh, songs for Big Chair, Running Order is. I know you don't agree, but then. No, I do, I do agree. I do agree. <laughs> I, I, I'd offer an alternative experience. I thought. But I think you guys got it right. This might be like a perfect running order. I couldn't, yes. I, you know. And as I said at the time, I was still working out. It was a really odd track to have second, but. Yeah, it's just absolutely. And I think, yeah, that was ingrained. It's certainly with me that. that um, dynamic of, of those songs was just felt so right that it was, you know subconsciously or consciously when we came to do Sowing the Seeds of Love it, it flowed naturally although I always thought and, I, and Kurt certainly thought and I think Roland does now that Sowing the Seeds of Love should have been first but it's a bit academic I mean it's still they're both singles you know so um, whether it's that Woman in Chains so Woman in Chains would no, be I, I think Woman in Chains is the perfect album track because when the album came out you wouldn't have heard that song that's whereas true. you would have heard Sowing the Seeds of Love and it would be like it's this amazing yeah 
I think it's a perfect first song. Well, yeah, it's, it's good. But no, I still, anyway, whatever. It doesn't matter. But um, yeah, I think the dynamic of the, because I mean, it is, but that's the great thing about Tears of Fears, you've got all these flavours to play with. You know, you've got all these elements, different smooth songs, where, which gives you the, you can, if you get them in the right order, and it can really make the, the journey of the album so great. <clears throat> so maybe that is the laws of the universe when it comes to compiling those sort of songs, you know, <laughs> natural dynamic. It's, it's, compiling a song is, I suppose, you know, without getting too arty about it, but when you're writing a symphony, it's, you know, this dynamic of where, what goes here and, you know, the, the mood goes down and then goes up. So, yeah, it's, it's, well, we, we struggled to get the album, the, that running order right, though. I mean, we had to, I don't know if I told you, but we had to, we were in New York. We, it was a real rush to get the run, <laughs> a rush after two years to finish the running order. And, um, it's a very tortuous process to do it. And we were booked on a flight to New York the next day. And I was stressing about it. And Ryan said, oh, I've just got, let's go, let's go to the pub. <laughs> I was going, fuck it, we can't go to the pub. we got to get this done. Anyway, so we, we did a running order. Went to New York and uh, we realised it wasn't right. Some of the mixes weren't right. So we had to move Bob Ludwig's, the mastering engineer, had to move his schedule around. We were there for a week. Some, the roadie came out with some different mixes. And we reordered it all in, in the, the mastering studio in New York. So, yeah, it wasn't um, as straightforward as songs in the big chair but um, yeah it's, it's very interesting that Kurt says that because I think he's absolutely right you know so, but I think I think subconsciously or not there's, 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 uh, it, it, the moods kind of naturally dictate what goes where I guess Tracy Belland aka Tracy Brim okay so Tracy for the audio commentary for Let It Be by Voice of the Beehive this episode is actually the least downloaded of the year but it's one of my favourites um, she's everything you want in a guest. She's likable, funny, engaging, perceptive. And it's a great album. Um, I don't think they're that known in America. I think that that is the main reason it's, it's down on the downloads. But you should check it out. If you don't know, then please listen to the album. Then listen to this episode. Thank me later. Anyway, here are a couple of the random questions at the end of the chat. Ageography, quick fire round. If anyone could cover a song from the LP, talking about Let It Be, which song would you choose and who would you have cover it? For Missy, I would have Dolly Parton, Duo Love. <laughs> and I would like to hear Jack White do The Beat of Love. Oh, that's an interesting choice. Why? Why that song? Because he makes me horny. <laughs> <laughs> that is the single I best love- answer I've ever had to any question. Thank it you. Makes- Randy, he makes. I think he could. <laughs> Jack White has a way of delivering a lyric where you blush, and he's not even doing anything intentionally. But you're like, oh my god, that sounds so wicked. Awesome. So I think he could do that song justice. I'm turning totally red right now. <laughs> Thank you for that answer. That's made my day. Um, your favorite top of the pops experience? Oh, of course. Are you kidding? Meeting Morrissey. I don't. Air or know what anybody thinks of him now. Mm-hmm. In the day, back in the day, Morrissey did Pregnant for the last time. I went up and I turned my guitar over and he signed it. And oh my God. And then I played it wrong way round and they got so mad because <laughs> they, I wanted people to see, look at Morrissey signed my guitar. They got so <laughs> mad because they actually thought people thought it was live. Oh, they yeah. don't lipstick on top, but it's like, you got to be kidding. At least have humor about it. But now I still have like a little O-R on it, but I sweat the, I sweated the rest off <laughs> with gigs and stuff. But, oh, that, oh my God, I met him and ah, I was crazy, crazy, crazy. And I went down in the audience when he played and I got in so much trouble. I didn't care. 
So what song were you doing at the time? Oh my God, who knows? No, it was, <laughs> uh, it was Monsters and Angels. Monsters and Angels, okay, I want to find the clip now. Okay, that's a great answer. Um, weirdest place you've heard your music? Oh, well, it was in a Ralph's. You don't know Ralph's. Ralph's is a market. It's like Marks and Spencer's or something. Okay. Big market here. It was an, a 24-hour market. It was about 3 in the morning, and I was buying groceries. God knows why at that hour, but <laughs> I I thought, God, this song sounds so familiar. That's weird. And it took me a good two verses to realize that it was uh, a song from Sex and Misery. So hard. Did you point it out to anyone? There was nobody in the market. No. Or when you paid for your groceries, did you like no. say? No. no, it's just not my cell. I just stood there alone and kind of went, all right, girl. <laughs> I, there, no, I just listened to it and then bought my ice cubes and my potato chips. I've asked that question a bunch of times. I keep waiting for someone to say, yeah, I nudged the person next to me and said, that's me, that is. Because I keep saying this, but that's exactly what I would do. Totally. I'd, I'd tell the next person. I'd, I'd grab somebody yes. who's filling a shelf yes. and say, that's my song. And you know what? I I have done that before. Oh, I, just okay. didn't, I just didn't at this time. Because I think the fa- if it was crowded for some reason, I would have done it. I would have said, you know what? This is my band. And I have done that. But the fact that it was totally empty... I just thought nobody really cares right now. <laughs> when was the last time you did do that then? I think Don't Call Me. No, it wasn't Don't Call Me Baby. I think it was Monsters and Angels. Yeah, we were in a shop in in America and I tapped somebody and I laughed and said, this is me. And they said, no, it's not. I said, no, it really is. No, it's not. I said, okay. And I walked away. <laughs> and it's not, I guess, you know better than me. <laughs> How frustrating. They didn't believe you. It's fine. I it's It's, you know, I don't need it. It's good. If you could change one thing about the LP, what would you change? Oh, <laughs> oh my God. I always have this argument. I swear to the day I die and the day he dies, we will fight about this. I hate the hand claps in what you have is enough. Darling, what you have is enough. Darling, I hate them. And Hugh Jones made us put them in. And I saw him 10 years later and said, you fucker, I hate those hand claps. He said, I stand by the hand claps. It's like, no. So that, he would laugh. That absolutely, I hate the hand claps in what you have is enough. Well, you may not have money to dress up like you know, honey, but what you have is enough. A dollar, what you have is enough. A dollar, what you have is enough. Oh, oh, oh. What's your objection to the hand claps then? What's the... Because they suck. <laughs> is it the fact they have hand claps at all, or just the style of hand claps in that song? I don't. It just it's forced frivolity and forced <laughs> happiness. Yay! You know, yeah, yeah. 
It's like having a cowbell. Nobody needs that. <laughs> so it's one Nobody, step above a cowbell. You don't need you don't need cowbell, do you? Oh no, no, but I swear I told him this is as bad as a cowbell. <laughs> Kevin, goodly. Kevin is one of those guests I'm amazed it's taken me so long to get on. Uh, I love Ten CC and Godly and Cream and the videos they've made. And there's so much to cover, even if you didn't quite get the point of the audio commentaries. This clip is the uh, audio commentary for Two Tribes, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, the Destructo Mix. And if you listen to it, you'll, you'll hear what I mean. We should really get him back to talk about Godly and Cream's music of the 80s. But anyway, listen to this. There's still enough here to make it of interest, I think. Okay. Starts with caption saying, the end, news of the day. Cuts to Richard Nixon sat on his desk, bullshitting us in scratch style. And, and that so what, take... what was your aim with this 12-inch version? What do you want to achieve that you couldn't with the normal version? What did we want to achieve with what? With this version, the longer version. More playful, more adventurous, more dangerous. And then we go through a news to a newscaster, which was stock footage. And then we go through to more archive, where we put <laughs> Yasser Arafat saying "well odd" to something that was obviously not well odd, and various politicians and stock footage of bombs and Kennedy and various pieces of, of political political stuff, and which takes us through to the set, which starts with big tannoy speakers. And we pull back from that to reveal the main set of the video, which is a kind of boxing ring made with sandbags. And the two protagonists, who we can't see as yet, so we don't know what's going on, a load of people, a crowd, an international crowd, plus camera people, and the whole thing starts. And then money's being exchanged. People are starting to shout, and each guy gets up and we see who they are and they're quite convincing and they're waving to the crowd and we see Frankie and off we go the fight begins and we'd choreograph this fight with these two guys um, a few days before the, the whole fight was quite well choreographed so we knew exactly what we were going to get uh, and all we had to do was cover it and he gets a kick in the ass. And Reagan gets applause. Now, there's lots of that going on. Essentially, we're cutting between Frankie, the reactions in the crowd, and, oh, Zinyanko grabs Reagan's balls, and, oh, very painful. We're using different mediums here as well. We're, using, we're shooting on video, we're shooting on film, and we're actually fucking up the video signal as well in lots of parts. Okay, Reagan's just stood on Zinyanko's foot, and he's biting his ear. And various captions are coming up briefly, flash captions, uh, which is quite effective. This is all very pre-Zoo TV, but it has something of that flavour about it. Um, okay, so now there's some beating. Okay, Reagan's just gone down. And uh, we're back to... Okay. And we're back to a distorted version of Nixon now. Uh, he's got a mouth in his forehead, and the fight is escalating. And it's, oh yeah, we're getting more political footage, bombers taking off, the fight's getting dirty. Okay. Oof. 
You just poke Reagan in the eye. Oh, oh, and the crowd is getting a bloodlust on here. And uh, yeah, kill, kill, kill. Okay. Chinenko's just gone down. <sighs> but he's getting up. He's getting up. Oh, he's kicked down again. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's getting dragged along the pit. Oh, but he hits back. Ah, Reagan's got Chinenko by the nostrils and he's dragging him around the arena. Uh, but he gets hit back. Down. Okay, so there's some visual scratching here. Oh, yeah. And there's some serious hitting about to take place. Oof. Yeah, come on. Yeah. And more captions on the books. Can stop them now. And tank. And everything's blurred. And going a bit strange because they're in bad shape, both of these guys. But, but Chinyanko's about to wallop Reagan, which he does. Ah, down Reagan goes. And now there are four Nixons, all the ratingers. Um, a very fast series of punches, which makes the screen go red with captions. And some breakup, a knee in the balls. And Reagan's down again. And we're on the band. And the crowd is going a bit crazy. Everybody's going crazy. Everybody's going crazy now. It's like... It's like something's infected them. The crowd are fighting amongst themselves. A couple of guys are about to jump in the, the arena, and this wasn't expected at all. They actually lost their heads. They, they were so into playing their parts, they started fighting each other for real. That's not happened yet. It's going to happen any second. Okay. They're in now. They're running around. They're wearing, they're wearing African robes. And Reagan and Chinenko are looking around, thinking, what the hell is going on? And it's chaos. It's utter chaos. And then we pull back from that to a series of shots of the world exploding. And the world does finally explode. Is that world exploding at the end? Is that one take? Is that what? That world exploding at the end. You had one shot at that, exploding the world and then filming it? Uh, no, I think we had about six. But uh, we, I think we got it on the third. Right. So when you watch a video like that, this was made nearly 40 years ago, it's kind of mad to think. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Do you, do, you, do you see any flaws in it? Do you see it as, it as a whole and think, yeah, it's a good piece of work? I think it's a, I think it's a good piece of work that stands up. Yeah. Today. There's a couple of shots where the fight could have been better. There's a couple of shots where the, where fists obviously misface it, misfaces there's a shot where one participant is supposedly stamping on another's foot and it's about a foot away. So it's it's not perfect by any means, but I think the message comes across just as powerfully now as it ever did. And that's probably down to the fact that we're using authentic footage as well as the stuff we, we shot and mixing it all up. And we are taking the piss out of war. Um, I think that comes across just as strongly now as it ever did. The only thing that's 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 aged are the leaders of the countries. They don't exist anymore. But in, in a sense, they're symbolic. And it would, the idea, if it was shot again today, would work just as well. 
Audio commentary, Invisible Touch by Genesis, with Hugh Padgham. Another Hugh Padgham audio commentary, the third after face value and synchronicity. This one was actually quite hard to edit. Audio commentaries seem like they'd be quite easy. It's just, oh, you just have the guests talk over the music, right? And then just, just don't have the music. But the problem is if somebody's talking about something specific that happens at 2 minutes 11 in the song, because there's pauses before you cut out the pauses and you cut out 30 seconds. Now, it's happening at one forty-one, but they're referencing something that happens in the song at 2.11. You've got to then edit stuff back into it so it aligns, and that could be a bit tricky. Uh, and there was huge periods, the track Domino, which is like 11 minutes long. There was about like a 90-second period where we were both just listening to it and nothing was said. Which is fine if you listen to the record. I know most people listen to these episodes on the go on their phones. So they just listen to it as an interview. So you can't really have, you know, 10, 15, 20 seconds of silence. It doesn't work. So that was quite tricky to edit. I would like to do another one with you. Maybe within somebody else's box. I find that the audio commentaries with two or three people in it really good because I have to bounce off uh, remembrances with each other. I think that really works well. Anyway, this is on anything she does, the forgotten track of Invisible Touch, if you ask me. So I've got these Spotify um, plays for the tracks. Oh, you have now. So which track do you reckon has the most plays? Well, I think it will be either Invisible Touch or Land of Confusion. Yeah, yeah. Which one of the two do you reckon is, has the most plays? Probably Land of Confusion. That's got over 100 million plays, but it? no, it's Invisible Touch, 174 million. Oh, okay. And which track do you reckon has the least number of plays? Um, I would say Anything She Does. Yes, correct, 2.8 million. Anything She Does, the wild intro. Yeah. So this is a sampled brass part. Um, yeah. By Tony. It's sort of got a sort of slightly crazy, full-on sort of sequencer thing going at sort of double speed, doesn't it? This could be the most 80s track on the album, actually, couldn't it? Weirdly enough, though, it has got... I think this is a real snare drum on it. Okay. And Tom's, but obviously it's all sequenced and stuff as well. As a Tony Banks lyric, it's basically you know to the page three girl. Were, were lyrics ever talked about in the studio? <laughs> no, I was, I was, I was looking at that and thinking that really wouldn't go down. It's such a good lyric, but you wouldn't have thought, you would thought like who wrote this lyric? You wouldn't think oh yeah, Tony Banks wrote this one. You can imagine it being like, like a Phil Collins lyric, maybe, but not Tony. Did they ever discuss it amongst themselves? Like, when that lyric was brought in, to say, oh, is this about page three girls? Or would it ever be talked about it loud in the studio? Or was it just like, oh, this is a lyric, Phil goes and sings it? He's listening to the lyrics. I don't... I kind of... I don't remember huge amounts of sort of discussion going... You know, wokeism hadn't... Or, 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 or um, hadn't been invented in those days... <laughs> But it sounds like there were pictures of scantily clad women. I think it was basically the roadie was 
was pulling out page three from the sun when he fancied one of the girls that stuck him <laughs> up in, uh, in the kitchen area or something. It, was, it, was, it certainly wasn't like the studio was full of um, Playboy magazines or anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly deep, is it, lyrically? It's, it's still a clever lyric. I do, I do like the lyric. Yeah, it's, 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 it's fun. And here's the brass sound. It's, not, it's quite good, really, isn't it? It's kind of the forgotten track on the album, really, isn't it? People don't really talk about this one because it wasn't one they played live. They did a video for it. Do you ever see the video of Benny Hill? Oh, God. Because they used to introduce... They had it before the show, before the um, gigs. Because it ends with them walking out towards the sta- the stadium or, or wherever the gig was. And then they start the show. Did you never see it? I don't think I ever did. Do you know, I, never, I don't think I ever... You know, it's slightly... It's sort of, you know, from, from the old Genesis sort of... Real, real Genesis fans probably didn't really approve of, of this very much, did they? I mean, they didn't really approve of of people like me when when we started doing Abacab, which was a totally different sound, really, wasn't it? From you know, it's quite a different sort of the modern sound. Yeah, right, listen, you'll hear the extra ten seconds towards the end of this. It depends how well you remember the original, whether you'll actually. You can tell the 10 seconds that weren't in the original album. So for some reason, this version has an extra 10 seconds on it. Well, it's it like, like a, a, we, we were saying before, it just sort of, it would have faded down. I just would have faded it out. And it just, it just finishes, doesn't it? It's just... It always finished, but they just put an extra 10 seconds at the end before it finishes. So the original finishes... Oh, what well, the, the original the is like that end. as well. There's a little 10 seconds before the end, but the bit there, whoa, whoa, and the bit before that, they added in. Oh, for some reason, that wasn't in the original album. So both versions end. But, but it still had that, the, the original one had that abrupt yes. end. Yes, yes. It's just yeah. there's 10 seconds before it that's added in that wasn't in the original, that I'd never heard before. How weird. Yeah, it seems very random. How weird is that? Is it another mix or something, or that just? Well, it must have been another mix that we would have edited it out, presumably. Yes. You can't it's just big. edit things in out of nowhere. We must have edited it out. End of side one. We're counting down the best songs. Listen to the experts. Uni Retro Action Click the download button Podcast Any of the 80s Podcast Any of the 80s Podcast Any of the 80s Turn me on at 80ofthe80s.com JJ Yen Challenge. JJ, another guy with an amazing CV. I was grateful to get. It was arranged for an hour, and I managed to get ninety minutes out of him, which I really appreciate. And it's also one of the reasons why I started the eighty ten format. 
And if I'd have had that idea previously, I would have done that with him because it was so much to cram into 90 minutes. Think about it, you got 10 years to cover plus a quick fire round. And there's that thing of having to get onto the next thing as opposed to really kind of delving into one thing for a few minutes at least. But it was a good interview, really good interview. And here he is on the eternally magnificent, ageless relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. A bit of a theme, Frankie theme here. Okay, and also in 83, there's a, a, a small track called Relax by Frankie Costello. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. One of the greatest songs of all time. So yeah. Trevor talks about it in great detail in his book. You're right. So basically, the version that came out was the fourth version. At least. And there was a setup in the studio. He says he was on the Lindrum. Don't know if he'd stolen it from Jeff or not, but Lindrum and vocals. Stephen Lipson was on guitar. You're on the Fairlight and Andy Richards on the keyboards. Correct. And you'll work on that for like hours and then eventually it you got it right and then you recorded it in, in one take is effectively what he's saying you, yeah you, i mean i remember it very well i essentially this bit i do remember we had tried many iterations and i've been collecting samples and bits and pieces from we've been at the manor in kidlington we've been working downstairs with the with the blockheads in drury's band and i was just hoovering stuff up as we went along as i did and we were upstairs in studio one at psalm west i think and it wasn't going well it really wasn't going well and it was it had become a grind if trevor said it was the fourth version that's probably correct probably at least the fourth version in any event he said I'm going to go and see Chill. I'm going to go home, wipe the tape. So he left and we sat around. And I think Andy Mayer said, why don't we just, you know, kick a groove around, have a bit of fun. So I loaded up the Fairlight and put the eighth notes piano on. And I had the sample of, of oh, I can't remember who it was, but the oh, 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 which is probably one of the Frankies. Oh, yes, it was It was a sample of the word come, and I just sliced the front off and changed the shape so it, it became more of a sort of om, 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 rather than come, come, come. And Andy was playing keyboards. We had a vague sort of loop on the lid, turned it up, and then I remember Steve Lipson said, well, I was may as well get my guitar out then and produced this guitar and started playing the riff. And I think... Everybody, the three of us knew we had something amazing because it was just extraordinary. And Trevor came back. He came in and said, what's that? And we all kind of went, oh, well, we've just been grooving around in a kind of slightly naughty schoolboy sort of way. <laughs> it's not much. It's not. No, no, he said, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Play it, play it, play it. So we did the loop and all that sort of business. And he sat down and he had the song in his head. He programmed the lint drum and we recorded it in one go. Wow. So what he says is true. And yeah. it so, worked because all the ammunition was lined up. Everyone had a good idea. Steve got his guitar out and started playing these outrageous riffs. Andy was on top form with the keyboards, with the Fairlight doing this bum, 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 eighth notes, pianos, and suddenly, boom, just happened. And I left the room after we recorded and went down to play um, uh, Space Invaders, I think it was one of those arcade games, and got 250,000, and I'd never got more more than about 20,000 and I thought my god what is going on there's a lot of energy about and I thought this is going to be huge can I Just say felt- you, you don't remember working on Absolute you don't remember what Bananarama song you worked on but you remember the score you had in Space Invaders in 19 19- yeah no exactly because it was that, that's how <laughs> deranged I was <laughs> 
Um, but I just, it had this, I had, it had, I went out of that room and went out there and it was just it, almost tingling. It's hard to explain. Right. But at the moment, so, so was it like it just clicked into place straight away and you knew this is the, this is the one? Or yeah. was it like a gradual kind of... It, yeah, no, you... no, 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 because, because basically once Trevor programmed the Lynn and we recorded it in one take, because it was live, as it were, yeah. and I was playing the riff, the down on down riff, everybody just stopped and went, wow, better get the band in. So, no, I think, I think it became very apparent to me quite quickly that it was very special. And I've done enough sessions to know when things were... You know, Steve Howe used to say when they were recording, is it happening? And... and you can't fix happening. Happening either happens or it doesn't. And back in the days when people played, things would have been wildly out of time, perhaps out of tune. But if they had, for the want of a better expression, a vibe and were they happening, that was that was the important thing you were trying to capture. And so when Trevor did the arrangement and Steve recorded it all, that moment captured it all. Captured it all. What makes relax so good it hasn't dated it still has a power to it what is the key to it what makes it such a, such a great track because as a song if you play it on acoustic guitar there's not really much of a song there but as a record it's just brilliant uh no it's a kind of chant isn't yeah. it because it, it doesn't there's no development of the melodic structure it's not like an elton john tune and i mean that with the most respect it doesn't develop anything but what mm-hmm. it does do I would say overall, by the way, that's a very good question, is that it sets up Holly's vocal. It set up Holly's vocal in such a way that he was riding across the top of this fantastic energy and the and the the, the wild saxophone at the beginning and the, and off he went. And I think it, uh, I, I wasn't in there for the recording of the vocals, but I think he did one or two takes. It just it just all, you know, to use the phrase, happened. Yeah, I think Trevor says in the book it was the first take. Yeah. Well. So I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised because it, it the, the energy when you're recording stuff and you spend a lot of time in the studio recording things, and one of my complaints about modern methods of making records is that you can process the energy out of them completely by seeking not necessarily perfection, but seek, seeking something that becomes very Yeah, no, no, no. I th- I think I think it would be safe to say that the way modern workstations work for music is there's they're over complex and it's difficult to capture energy in a real, real sense of performance because there's too many opportunities to go back and fiddle. Yeah. Yeah. In the same process, when you go back to fiddle with things, because you can, you can muck it up. Yeah. There's less, less opportunity for happy mistakes that lead to great, great music. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 you know, people of a certain age like me go, well, you know, when you had four track and eight track, you had to make decisions and bounce things. And now it's so open-ended that you really don't have to make those decisions until you decided you want to try and mix. And then you do a mix and someone else goes, well, I don't like that. And you do another one. You can go on forever. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a day in the life recorder on four track. Quite possibly. Yeah. All the, all the great stuff was. I mean, ABBA, you know, four track, eight track, bouncing great performances. You work out your harmonies, you work out your guitar parts, you get it all sorted out. That's a good one. We'll keep that. Bounce it, you know. And so you, you, you acquire a whole load of brilliant performances. You don't go, can we just do that again? And you know, at the end, try and just, ugh. <laughs> go mad. Audio commentary, Steve McQueen by Prefab Sprout, with Thomas Dolby, Martin McAloon, and Wendy Smith. Uh, another shout out to Robert Stannard for the donation and the, the, the suggestion I chased Thomas Dolby the second time to do this audio commentary. I usually have a moment during interviews practically all interviews, I'm thinking, oh, this is kind of cool, I'm doing this. 
you know, at home, my computer, just, just listening to these, these people talk about their amazing careers. And I think this was the biggest moment of that. Um, sitting at home, listening to Thomas Dolby and Martin and Wendy of PFI Sprout talking about just one of the best albums of all time. It's such a privilege. I've said it before, but it's such a privilege just to be there to hear it. And my other thought was, why am I the person doing this? Me and my crappy little podcast. But hey, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. It's by far the most popular episode of the year and and I've ever done. This this section is them it's basically the moving the river track commentary, but as much more besides. Anyway, love these guys. Yeah, would any of you ever discuss with Paddy what the lyrics mean? Or would that not be important when it comes to making an album? No, we would not never ask him to explain any of them, no. Yeah, I've, I've never discussed lyrics with Paddy. Or the only time we have discussed it is when I've notated the lyrics down, probably incorrectly, and then six months later he's realised that the lyrics have changed. Um, <laughs> but not, not about what they mean. So, so Mark, I mean, I'm interested in this. Did, did it, Was there ever a point when you felt that it was sort of autobiographical in a way that affected you as a member of the family? It's always difficult to talk about these things because I know that I'd just rather not talk about because it's not about anything autobiographical, but to comment either way makes it sound like it is. So, And it wouldn't it wouldn't be. It would be, yeah, I'm just digging a dig, bigger hole by talking about it to be a brilliant. So I'm going to back out of that. I mean, I think all, all writers draw from real experience, but move into the realm of fiction. So, you know, it's like when I think about Paddy's lyrics, I'm, I'm assuming these are imaginary characters that have been influenced by people he knows or met in real life or whatever. But, you know, he's really a fiction writer to me. You know, it's like I always felt he was like a novelist as much as a songwriter. The one thing I would say was would be <laughs> the money for jam line. It was, it was somebody who would come into the garage for petrol who would say that. So I so little things like that, but it's it's money for jam, money for jam, John, money for jam. It was a guy who used to serve petrol too <laughs> every week. But there's also a huge cast of other musicians in Paddy's writing: Georgie Gershwin, Farron Young, Elvis. Yeah, you're um, right. Yeah, he likes those themes, doesn't he? Yeah, definitely. So it's not just about what's close at home but also about, about cultural iconic, music. Iconic characters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like writing an album about Michael Jackson. Yeah. I remember meeting with, with you guys in Camden Town to do an album, and, and I said to Paddy, so you got this, this album, what's the new album about? And he said, it's about death and Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, Moving the River. That was one you you played live a lot, right? I and mean, that really sounds like a sort of pub classic. <laughs> <laughs> Probably at that point, no. Probably at that point would be a brand new one. I've got to say here that Neil played great throughout the whole album. I don't think we've mentioned Neil Conti who played drums for us. And he was instrumental, literally in, instrumental in, in sorting me out. I think Thomas as well had a lot to do with that. But yeah. I, I was always ahead of the beat and Neil was always at the back end of the beat and uh, <laughs> there was no compromise. I just had to change. 
love your piano playing here, Tom. Oh, cheers, mate. <laughs> I mean, I can remember saying, you know, one time after a, a take of a song, um, all right, um, I think everybody will, will just take it up a couple of beats per minute. Mark, you can stay where you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, listen, I remember you saying the same thing to me around the microphone in, in oh, when we were doing Langley Park to Memphis and we were in the studio, um, Harold Faltermeyer and uh, Giorgio Moroda's studio. And we had to go next door to record some vocals as a, as a, as a chorus of singers. And um, you said, can everybody step closer to the microphone? Martin, can you step a bit further away? That's because your projection is so good, Mark. Exactly, Thomas. That's what I'm going to do. I didn't really even need to mic you up. Exactly. You saw, this boy's so good, you don't need a microphone. I, I kind of wish I hadn't. <laughs> Fantastic. Billy Curry. Okay, so it's a two-part 80-10 to come with Billy. So this is just a short extract from the Vienna episodes of then two Anatomy of the Song episodes for Vienna and Fate to Grey. So this is a short extract from Vienna. It's basically a teaser from a teaser for a much bigger interview. This is another one I was thinking, oh, this is so cool. I'm talking to Billy Curry, one of the guys from my, my first favourite band. Uh, and he's a very unique interviewee in the very best way. Anyway, here's Billy on Ultravox. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by the songwriting process uh, with the four of you. Is it fair to say that, generally speaking, over the course of Ultravox's time in the 80s, that you and Midge were the main songwriters, or would it depend on the song? Well, we were the main songwriters, and Chris added subtle bits, important bits, being that it was holding things up. That's funny when you think of Chris's personality. No joking. Uh, and I, he was quite a mad sort of guy to play bass, really. I mean, I'd got to know him really well. I didn't mean that as a as a, a, a jab. What I meant was it's, it is quite funny, someone like Chris playing bass, but it, the bass function is to hold things up, you know, yeah. a, a, a quite a lot of the time. So he played his part, but it was mostly me and Midge getting stuck in there with... Um, I mean, Midge got took care of the... the uh, lyrics more and more by himself but at first it was assisted by Chris and sometimes Warren but mostly Midge and so I, I let that be as it was and I'd just say when I didn't like something but overall getting things started I'd come up with music I was always working on coming up with music and Midge would respond quite quickly but then again of course you know what you've got to have um, a decent feel to it so Warren was in incredibly important as well and when Warren came up with something that stimulated me I would that would more chance of me coming up with an idea but quite a lot of the time it was a case of me and Midge bag banging our heads together <laughs> I mean it was you know it was interesting combination we were we were a good combination uh, and it uh it worked. It worked, you know, which was fantastic. John Patoka. You know, I'm relieved I've not had to lie about any of the guests. They've all been great. Uh, John's energy and likability reminded me a lot of actually Martin Page. Same kind of enthusiasm and, and likableness and, and knowledge and, and energy. And it's just a pleasure to be around. And he's a nice guy. And I gave him some audio advice too afterwards, which was appreciated. Uh, this is John talking through the 12-inch mix for Susudio, or Su Susudio, as he calls it. Really interesting stuff. Okay, so here we go. I'll play it through the speakers because I'm not set up any other way. And there's a little lag going right now, so let's let that go. Okay, here we go. Can you hear that? Yeah. 
So this part right here, right? I mean, I can stop it as we go. But this is actually the chorus. You know, I grabbed it from some section of the chorus. And I've got a drum machine going on that's panning here. I'm changing the drums. He's not, like, he didn't play the drums that way. I'm just using his snare hits. Same thing with the uh, keyboard part. I'm bringing that in and out, you know, where I want it. Those are all edits, those snare hits. He's never played that way. Those claps going on that has some delay. Bringing those in. And I'm pretty sure I bring the vocals in for a touch here. Yeah. And I like that snare hit thing, so I repeated it, but that time I had the bass line underneath and some other things. So yeah, all these different emphasis that I'm putting on here, like these snare splashes up on big reverbs. So there you go. I, I, I'll keep it down low, and when something pops up, we can come back to it. So when you say there's edits, where, what are they edited from? So you've you created them there, to add to the track. Yes. So what's happening there on that one, I think I'm pretty sure that was two 24-track tape machines synced up. So it's 48 tracks. I don't think it was any more. Sometimes I would run three machines. Whatever they delivered to me, I would mix the multi-tracks of down to a two-track machine. So the two-track is where I would edit it. So I'd go into the section of the song of the multi-track and say it's the chorus outro. And I'd say that would make a good intro if I pull this out, push this up, <laughs> make this thing play half as much or, or whatever it happens to be. So somebody can segue into the tune. And that's how I start my song. So when I said, well, those snare hits, he didn't play there. I just took those like those one whole note hits, boom, boom, boom. It might have been like he's just doing chick, chick, gack, 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 gack. I'm cutting all that out and I'm just editing those snare parts on the two inch machine to make it like a, a, a different, you know, like he played it differently kind of thing. And then I would do the same thing, like whatever parts, you know, I felt to, to, to work with. The horns, you know, I remember using the horns here a lot that they didn't use, you know, because they were playing this riff that I thought was really nice, you know, funky, and I wanted to use a lot. I would use a portion of what they played, but then I'd either repeat it or edit it differently uh, with mutes at the console automation so it would play differently and then edit that in. It's kind of hard to explain without actually having sort of the equipment really in front of you, you know, mm -hmm. to see what that's up. But it's it's pressing all the buttons, you know, on an SSL console, basically playing those things. You know, that's, to me, that's what remixing's about. You're, here's the horn part. Like, this is a breakdown. But there was those snares. I kept coming back to that because I felt it was a hook. And then I put like some modulations on some of the percussions so the pitch of it moves up and down and it's doing some melodic. This is all, yeah, all that, those bass lines, it's like that's not the way it was delivered. I just pulled it from different sections. So at what point are you listening to the whole song? Are you doing like 
a part of it that you're adding to it and then you listen to it all to check or you're just doing it in 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 component parts which eventually you edit together and then you listen to the whole mix oh uh, yeah so cool so i mean i guess it depends on who it is the way i would do it was i would work on a section i'd work on that next section that i thought was coming put that together and i would kind of work linearly i might as i'm working linearly i might say oh I make a note like this section I'm going to use now somewhere else, like not in the timeline in the linear timeline that I'm developing. That's different than the linear timeline of the multi-track that was delivered to me. But I would put it together as I'm going. And I would also a lot of the times go back to the top just for continuity and play it to the part, not just the part in front of it. Like I want to feel the whole flow of the whole thing, but I can tell you one time, uh, it could have been more than one, but one time in specific, working with Francois, uh, doing a remix, I don't know what it was. And I think Shep might have done the same thing. They they ended up getting some skills in terms of knowing how to edit pieces together. And we shut down the session. You know, nowadays, you don't, you know, the studio clock really isn't running in a digital audio workstation. But when you're in a studio and there's another client coming in at 10 o'clock and it's 9.45, you got to get out of the room and you haven't edited anything. You haven't put anything together. I can remember them leaving with all the pieces unassembled and then they assembled them off-site, like at their place, at their studio, at their little home recorder. That takes a lot of, of balls, man, to do that because I wouldn't know where I'm at. I know yeah. I'd have some really good pieces, but I don't know how it's fitting. But that's cool. Thomas Dolby. And we are up to date now with the two-part inaugural 8010 episode, and there's no more better guest than Thomas Dolby. It was after getting him back uh, for a while. I fucked up the first time we did the rearranged the interview because he was in the UK for Stephen Queen, and he wanted to speak at 2pm, so we moved things around so we could speak at 2pm, and then he just didn't turn up to the interview. Oh, what's happened? emailed him and he was he's in america so it's 2 p.m u.s time as a rule one for podcast interviewers confirm the country your guest is in beforehand it's a useful thing to know uh luckily we got it right the next time and and he was fantastic he was willing to to not watch the beginning of an england friendly which is commitment i like that yeah he reminded me like tracy brinway he he'd give very his, his quotes were very specific beautifully articulated but to the point you can get some people that ramble a bit and within that is a really interesting answer or you get some people that are to the point but they don't really give you the detail and people like Thomas and, and Tracy will, will give you all of it. Concise, precise, entertaining, witty, perceptive and without the ramble and it's, it's just such a pleasure to edit, if nothing else. Anyway, he was great, as was the answer to this question. Is that a question I've always wanted to ask an 80s pop star okay so when it comes to sex drugs and rock and roll in the 80s do you think you got the ratio right <laughs> that's a very funny question um do you mean for maximum pleasure well, whatever your interpretation of that question is that's kind of why i asked the question depends on how you hear the question well i think that um you know sex is ultimately harmless uh in the 80s maybe not and Maybe we paid a penalty for that. Um, and there's a generation of people that are no longer with us that sort of paid that penalty. But I think generally speaking, um, you know, sex is a good thing. Um, 
rock and roll generally a good thing, although my hearing, my audiologist might not agree. Uh, I think my hearing is probably better than many musicians my age because, you know, I didn't, I didn't have big Marshall guitar stacks and drummers in my ear and things like that. So I hear okay, but it's not great. Uh, as far as drugs, nah, sort of dabbled, you know, but I was never a serious user and, um, never, I'm not a, a compulsive person. So I don't think I was ever really in danger of becoming too dependent or anything like that. I experimented a bit like everybody else. And then I did way less in the nineties and noughties than a lot of ravers around. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't particularly interested in, in, in that. So did I get the proportion right? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I had lots of sex, which, uh, you know, I'm still perfectly happy about. Um, I don't think I did enough drugs to really harm me. And uh, aside from slight, upper range hearing loss. Uh, I, I have no regrets about the rock and roll either. Excellent. So the answer is yes. Yes. And to end with a roundup of some of the answers to the final four, the last four questions I ask in the quick fire round. So what is your biggest professional disappointment of the eighties? You know, when the second Frankie album might kind of, uh, that was a disappointment. That I say nothing wasn't a bigger hit. That it didn't work out with Johnny Mitchell. I suppose I was disappointed that it didn't work out Peter Gabriel. I mean, that's, but not disappointed enough to, to stick at it. Prefer- I just didn't have one. Just didn't have one. Best professional moment of the 80s? Well, winning the Brit was pretty cool. Well, it's got to be songs on the big chair, really, I think. Professionally, okay. <laughs> yeah, come on, Trace. Professionally, <laughs> oh, meeting Morrissey, for sure. Meeting Morrissey. Oh, yeah, and also writing a song with... Andy Partridge from XTC. It's that's oh, above yes. Morrissey. That's above Morrissey. It was the period of time where we just shot two really good videos very close together. We shot Every Breath You Take, and we shot Herbie Hancock's Rocket. And uh, we were invited to the very first MTV award show. I think we win. We won nine statuettes in all, or seven, not sure. A whole lot of statuettes, those astronauts, for that work. Jumping into the car and hearing Beatbox was the number one dance chart in America. It was extraordinary. You know, having Phil basically kind of whisper my ear, of doing the first thing I'm doing for him, that, hey, if I thought of that intro, I would have used it on my version. That was, that was great. It would be a toss-up between having a top five single myself versus standing on stage at Wembley behind David Bowie playing Heroes. The Eternal Jukebox. So which three tracks of yours of the 80s would you keep? I'd probably keep Left to Iron Devices, Slave to the Rhythm and uh, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. The album version, obviously. Obviously, then it's long. Shout Baby, I think, by uh, Danny Wilson. Uh, let's go for, um, yeah, Never Let Me Down. Three songs I'd keep. Moments in Love, Peter Gunn, Close to the Edit. One of Our Submarines, Budapest by Blimp, uh, Screen Kiss. So which three 12-inch mixes of yours would you keep from the 80s? I mean, we got to kind of stay in that Genesis Phil Collins land. Yeah, Susa Studio, Easy Lover. We'll come up with something else here. Ah, got it. Probably just go with Paul McCartney because he's Paul McCartney. <laughs> Which McCartney? Maybe Pretty Little Head because it's kind of out there. Three words to describe your 80s. Fucking amazing. Unrepeatable. 
or new musical technology? Naive, wise, and bittersweet. Productive, tiring, owned. Stoned. Owned. Frantic, fun, extraordinary. Not much sleep. Daring, chaotic, and busy. And that is it, my friends, for 2023. And thanks to all the wonderful guests, each one an absolute pleasure. And thank you to you, dear listeners, whether you listen to one or all, and also those who's contributed via PayPal, to adiosography at gmail.com, to the upkeep of adiosography HQ and to keep it ad-free. Uh, appreciated beyond measure. And that includes listeners Simon Wagstaff, Stephen Medcraft, and Kenneth Mayuri. I hope I've pronounced that right, Kenneth. Thank you for your generous contributions. And if you want to get in contact with your three eternal jukebox choices, feel free and I can include them next time. Anyway, let's get out of here. God, 2023 increased my nostalgia for 1983 even more, tenfold. Uh, The world seems to be taking a downturn, so this song seems fitting to end with. Plus any chance to play a track from this album, which I think is my favourite album of the last 20 years, by the former Carl Smith, a.k.a. Chaz Smash of Madness. Cathal Smith. This album from 2014 or 15. A Comfortable Man. Very beautiful, beautiful album. And this is Goodbye Planet Earth. Goodbye. Half the planet's burning. We humans, we're not learning. The world is leaking oil and dirt has gone. Tomorrow we'll go looking for the sun I see ash clouds overhead I hear rumours of some dead For some time now we thought the end is come What the hell do you think is really going on? Japan's great nation They've got the radiation Sadly now There's nowhere left to run I hope there's room on board For everyone And Mother Earth is crying out in pain My brothers, they are dying all for gain Children, they run screaming As their sisters lie there bleeding When all they ever wanted was to live That's all that they can give
I see it in the sky And all the lucky ones They turn away They're so happy and relieved That they've been saved They're flying into space To find another place And just then Planet Earth It starts to crack I don't think that they're ever coming back Billy Curry on Vienna by Ultravox. Is he Billy Corner Curry? <laughs> Just have a lager and dance.